Can you let me word? Ooh, there it goes. Um, the uh, our first speaker for the day is um, well. In fact, before I get there, with Madiba's hundredth sort of centenary year this year, there've been some wonderful stories leaked about our former president. One of my favourites was in 1994. He was invited to, in fact, 1990, was invited to a, a huge banquet at F.A. de Klerk's residence in Cape Town at the time, gold cutlery, I mean, one of those uh, banquets, and he was seated next to uh, the former foreign minister at the time, Pope Boerta. And as Mediba sat down, he, he noticed the golden, you know, uh, knives and forks, and he said to Pope, this is gold, I, I think I'm going to take home a set with me. And Pope Boerta said to him, and this is, this is an official record, said, I know what you mean, I already have a set in my pocket, okay? <laughs> It's a true story. So Madiba's asked to speak that night, uh, and in a true Madiba style, stands up at the podium. He says, before I talk to you, I'd like to show you a magic trick. And he holds up a gold knife. He says, I'm going to take this gold knife. I'm going to put it in my pocket. I'm going to say abracadabra, and when I do, it's going to appear in Pukbuta's pocket. <laughs> <laughs> and then the official record goes blank. No one knows what happened after that. But, uh, but lovely story. I, I tell you that because uh, our first speaker, Michael Yodan, took his gold watch that he got from F&B, and he started a private investment company called Montegray Capital, amongst other things. I think he's a... Uh, He's got a long list of amazing achievements, probably most well-known for uh, taking us from traditional banking and taking F&B from traditional banking to the world's most innovative bank in 2012. The bank that lets you switch with a selfie today. I mean, how cool is that? Uh, and uh, got an amazing mind. Uh, you, you're, you're privileged to listen to what he has to say today around future investments. I bumped into him earlier and he said, Mike, don't say anything silly or don't say anything nasty. I'm like, why would I do that, Mike? He built probably the greatest mountain biking single track in the country on his farm and he opened up for us to ride. So well, how could you say anything horrible about a guy like that? So please, why don't you welcome to the stage, Michael Yodan, uh, The Future Investments. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It reminds me of a situation. Have you ever been in a discussion or a, I don't know, meeting at work and somebody uses a big word, probably to impress you, but they mispronounce it? <laughs> um, have you ever chuckled at those people? Because that's what I always do. I think they try and be important. Um, and only later in life did it dawn on me that if people use a word correctly but mispronounce it, they probably learned it via reading. Um, so that, I'm Afrikaans, it happens to me a lot. Um, so I'm going to, you know, I think of the, 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 question, the word rhetorical. I think that's pronounced correctly, but I don't know whether you say rhetoric or rhetoric. Okay. Uh. I don't know, maybe you know. And I say that because I wanted to say that I'm very daunted at speaking at such a cerebral audience, but is it cerebral or cerebral? <laughs> so, so, so anyway, I'm, I'm grateful that you have me here again. I think I've been here three, three times, and I'm speaking to a clever audience. You see, you use small words. Um, <laughs> the, the previous times I've spoken have been about things like disruption and innovation and leadership and so on, which are kind of easier topics in a sense because they're broader, and you can't really disagree with you know, those abstract things. I've been asked today to speak about the future of investing, and I'm going to for once listen and do it. Um, and the future of investing, in my mind, is uh, all about machine learning. So that's the topic. Um, the, the future of investing is not about people. And um, yes, let's, let's get straight into it. It's not just me that is saying it. Big, big companies are doing it. Goldman, for example, exchanged a trading room of five to 600 traders for 200 engineers, like all the IT guys, engineers, and algorithms. I mean, that's a big name in the industry. JP Morgan is trying to do the same. One of their latest senior hires was actually out of academia, a lady that now um, is trying to, to outperform the markets with algorithms. 
BlackRock is doing the same, bulking up on research on artificial intelligence. Um, it's all about investing in algorithms to beat the markets. Some of them high frequency, others of them um, quite long-term in nature. So that is what's happening on the active side of management. People are trying to outperform markets using algorithms. On the passive side, what is happening in the world is everything is going to zero. So management fees on funds that are tracking the market will no longer be at the 80s or 60 basis points, or I think right now it's at 40. It's an inevitable trend that passive will get to zero, and there too automation will play a role. But in terms of passive investing, the big names are doing it, and a lot of the startups, and I'll tell you about that, are actually looking at how algorithms and machine learning can outperform the market. So what is the impact of artificial intelligence? And we'll, I'll be a little bit more specific about my definitions later on um, in the business world, is that it's, it's leading to automation. There's still an incredible amount of work that's happening in financial services firms that can be automated. Um, it's leading to better more intelligent decision-making, analysis and decision-making. And as happens with all technologies, it's leading to entirely new business models, not all of which we've thought of yet. So if I can ask you for something, you being a cerebral, cerebral audience, is while I talk, just think of the impact of these technologies on A, your clients, on your products, on your employees or yourselves, um, in terms of either the cost savings that can be brought about or the completely new and better decisions that can be made um, in your world. So the big drivers are, that are enabling change um, don't come from finance. Actually, one of the big things that's driving change is natural language processing. Languages are actually incredibly complex. We know that if you want to learn Russian, it will take many, many hours and you'll end up making mistakes. And partly what is difficult about languages is you can't just directly translate the words. Um, Languages string them together in different ways and decline them differently. Um, so machine learning had to figure out these things. Um, and they couldn't do it uh, directly. They had to train themselves. Um, machine vision is developing. Um, I'll show you how that happens. That, uh, machines get better um, at processing and understanding images. Speech recognition. So now you can talk and they recognize it. I'll give you some examples of that. Uh, machines can now generate speech in such a way that it's sometimes quite difficult to figure out that you are talking to a machine. They keep on learning from data. They are becoming better and better at forecasting. And that, after all, is what we do in the financial markets. And all of this is done by information processing. And you can even now have agents um, that are driven by machine learning. So, as I said, none of these come from the financial world or the financial services world, but they are the, the key building blocks. They're more image generation, handling and control, navigation, movement. Um, and these are the, the factors that are driving machine learning. What is fundamentally different from the past world, the world that I must admit I grew up, you just have to focus on the left-hand one, is traditional programming is all about you put inputs into a program and you get outputs. It could be as simple as an Excel spreadsheet. You put all your inputs in, there's some calculations, and it gives you a desired output. Where machine learning is fundamentally different is you can feed in the inputs and the outputs that you observe, and it figures out what program is most applicable to produce those outputs. And in the fuzzy world that we live in today, where you know, what's happening to GDP is not clearly going to impact the company's earnings in three years' time, it is actually very interesting to see what those correlations are. So machine learning figures out the program for itself. Um, also definitionally, there's a lot of talk, gee, I sound like you two, 
um, about artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence is quite a scary thing and can easily be derided because artificial intelligence tries to mimic, let's say, everything you as a human can do. But um, that, that's actually very difficult and it's probably still many years away. But if you narrow the field down to specific tasks, then you can start calling it machine learning or deep learning. So um, it's going to be very difficult to make a machine that can do everything that you can do. But if you say, like, just make coffee, the way you do it, it can probably make a better cup of coffee than you. So that would be machine learning or deep learning. So don't let people um, you know, use those words and make it too scary or seem that it's too far. Machine learning is very, very good at very specific tasks. So the three big things, forget everything I've said so far, is just understanding the explosion of data that is happening in the world and in financial markets. Um, understand the explosion that's happening in processing power, and particularly the cloud. You know, we've got lots more data than you ever had before, lots more processing power. And the third element to this is now, people can't figure all this out, but machine learning models can, and they do. So let's just talk about all those things. I'm going to talk about the models, the data, processing power, and then what's happening in the world of open or crowdsourcing. This is a company, Better Mint, that is saying that they will be very good for you as a, as a robo-advisor. Incidentally, I don't even like the word robo. I don't mean conjures up I don't know, Star Trek and Star Wars and real robo. All it really is is doing a proper analysis of the client's needs and telling them you know, what portfolio will best suit them, and then they change it over their lifetime. The only point I wish to make about robo-advice is that I think it's, this is the very, very, very beginning. It's completely in its infancy. I mean, I don't think... Robo-advice is the future of, of the financial markets. I just think it's one of those very, very basic building blocks. Far more interesting is how we're going to interact with the markets. And a lot of this comes from natural language processing. I'm not sure if you can read this from afar, but it's just got a, a simple speech. Mrs. Clinton previously worked for Mr. Obama, but she's now distancing herself from him. I mean, very easy and intuitive for you to understand. It's actually quite complex for a machine. And the way it does it is it breaks it up into different parts and sees what the dependencies are. And over time, if it studies many and many of these speeches, it gets to understand it. Now, where this becomes interesting for us um, is that it can start analyzing sentiment. What is good and what is bad? This happens to be a review of a movie um, that is based on a book by Michael Crichton, another Michael. Um, and it's able to see the green is very positive sentiment, less green is not so positive, and red is, um, is negative. So it's an example of how you can, using free algorithms now, detect sentiment um, kind of mostly correctly um, uh, from, from anything that's written. So we took this algo and we applied it just on MoneyWeb and News24 on one stock, which you'll all know called um, Steinhoff. And the interesting thing about you know, the positive and the negative sentiment is that you could see how the sentiment dropped precipitously long before the, um, the report by, um, what's her name, came out. And, and the stock price, you could see the red there, how rapidly it dropped further then. I mean, after that, Renaissance, no, not Renaissance. Viceroy, Viceroy, of course. I'm sorry, it's just four people, so they don't have a big brand in any of it. But uh, the point is, yes, just one stock that, because of sentiment, our algos and little fun that we run wouldn't touch. Um, so we don't think we would like super smart or anything. It's just that there's a lot of sentiment out there, and this was just two publications. You can get a lot more sophisticated on that. And all the big companies and lots of startups are doing it. 
I mean, I've got an example there. I think the one is IBM. So IBM can do sentiment analysis. But you can now find early news alerts, which is specific for traders. That's Acorn in America. The psych, uh, sorry, psych signal is one of traders. Early news alert is just you can find out about the news long before everybody else has processed it by reading the New York Times or the Financial Journal. And the bottom right one is one called Raven Pack. Um, actually, one of the best ones around. You pay for it. They're not that good at South Africa yet. But, um, you know, I think the first person who gets them to do South Africa and is willing to pay is going to get some serious um, sentiment insights um, that will be useful. The next thing that's happening is chatbots. I was speaking to Michael about it right at the beginning. They're also built on, on um, speech recognition. And the amount of interaction that you can now have um, and you think it's a human being is, is quite immense. Now, again, this is not necessarily for stock selection, but it definitely impacts on the way that you would service your customers and a lot of human interaction can be taken away. The, the thing that impressed me most about speech recognition, um, I've got one example here where you can actually um, speak in, I think this is 40 languages. So basically how it works is you speak into a pod and you have your phone there and that phone will speak in your language, oh, yeah, sorry, in your voice in one of 40 languages. So I could be having this presentation in Mandarin now um, if I had wanted to do so. If you want to check this out, you may want to use Skype, um, which is a free service where you can phone across the world. Um, I think they offer it in seven languages now, but if you have a girlfriend in Spain, you can phone and speak to her in Spanish, and she can speak Spanish back to you in English. Pretty cool, all for free, and this is where technology is now. And once again, the way to think about this is how difficult it would be for you to learn Spanish or Mandarin or Russian, um, and these guys have figured it out as well. And if they can do that for speech, um, why can't they do it for financial markets as well? Do you want to ask Google to make you a haircut appointment on Tuesday between 10 and noon? What happens is the Google Assistant makes the call seamlessly in the background for you. So what you're going to hear is the Google Assistant actually calling a real salon to schedule the appointment for you. Let's listen. Oh, happening out here? Hi, I'm calling to book a woman's haircut for a client. Um, I'm looking for something on May 3rd. Sure, give me one second. Mm-hmm. Sure, what time are you looking for around? At 12 p.m. We do not have a 12 p.m. available. The closest we have to that is a 1.15. Do you have anything between 10 a.m. and uh, 12 p.m.? Depending on what service she would like, what service is she looking for? Just a woman's haircut for now. Okay, we have a 10 o'clock. 10 a.m. is fine. Okay, what's your first name? The first name is Lisa. Okay, perfect. So I will see Lisa at 10 o'clock on May 3rd. Okay, great. Thanks. Great. Have a great day. Bye. There's a very funny background noises there. I don't know, that might have been Big Brother watching and so on. But quite amazing, right, that this is starting to happen. And, you know, all of you will have Siri or um, the Google uh, version on your phones. Um, Michael said earlier, sometimes it's, it's uh, difficult to unlearn the old habits. You know, so I still find myself typing and so on when it's not necessary anymore. Um, but in any event, this isn't magic we're talking about. It exists already. You can start using it already. 
And what you need to think about, remember, is clients, products, cost savings, etc., is how this technology can completely change the future of investing in your business. So the way image rec processing or recognition works, I mean, there you can see quite a, like a dull shape. Um, a computer would look at that um, where there's nothing would all be zeros, but then it would say so where it sees black, it would give it a certain texture. Built on that, it would build a block, and then it would go into that and deeper and deeper and start seeing if it can make sense of it. So that's just a black block. But now clearly you can start using real pictures. It won't at first know, I think you can see water, grass, and two boats there. But after many repetitions, just like it did in language, it will start recognizing what the images are. So, so maybe you can already think what that would mean in the financial markets. Let me just give you some examples. This is a company that... Um, can make huge profit if it knows what the storage of oil is in the world. Okay? Because obviously there's supply and demand and there can be a build up of stocks or drawdown of stocks. What it does is it flies over all these storage sites. And based on the time of day and the shadow, because clearly the time of day will influence where the sun is, and what the shadow looks like, it can then say whether that thing is full or empty or somewhere in the middle. Um, so, incredibly good at um, detecting oil stocks all over the world. Now, you may or may not know, but there are satellites that are flying across South Africa every four hours. So, you could do this every four hours in South Africa and see um, the storage in South Africa or anywhere else in the world where it actually happens at a far higher frequency. Another example, also aerial photography. In this case, it, these are coal stocks. So again, you can look at the size of the coal stocks. You can actually also look at the shadow and can see whether, let's say, ESCOM's coal stocks are building up or drawing down. And you can't necessarily trade ESCOM, but you can trade it for a number of coal mines. So this is access to complete alternative data that typically people don't know about. And the interesting thing, this is data um, that is real time. It happens today. And mostly what we do in, in our analysis of markets is we focus on past financial information, um, you know, when economic growth is even published, it's past, and this is all live in real time. Um, or you can use the satellite images to look at agricultural production. Let's say you want to be long or short on sugar. You can actually see, you know where the big regions are, where it's produced, you know what the weather patterns are, and you can see how well the sugar is growing. Um, once again, alternative data that gives you um, confidence of where the market is moving way ahead of anyone else. This is a picture that is taken outside of a shopping mall. So if you want to know how well Walmart or Pick and Pay or ShopRite is doing, you can analyze every four hours how full the, the, the parking is. Not only can you see how full the parking is, what this image recognition can do is actually see which cars are there. Um, and they just know that, I don't know, people with Fiat Unos buy less and people with, uh, you know, I don't know what it is, luxury SUVs generally buy higher value items. And it's highly predictive of retail spend, much more so than the people in the industry even know. Um, and again, you can fly every four hours and look what's happening. Um, let's say the company you're following is a hotel stock. What you should be doing is putting a little camera outside every hotel. So at night, you can see which rooms have their lights switched on and where there's movement in it. Gives you, once again, a sense of occupancy levels at every single hotel, sometimes even before management now. So this is, you know, this isn't even rocket science. Um, the cost of putting those cameras is quite low. They work on battery power. You can connect them to a LTE network, and they can give you all that information in a processed form every single day. So 
I've given you examples of how machine learning has done image recognition. Some of this come through um, from language recognition. So what they're already doing is they're taking things they've learned from translating languages, footy languages, and using that same technology to, if, you can, if you can predict what word they should be using in another language, they can also predict what stock prices are going to be. And they do it through a number of levels. Um, technically, it's called a convoluted neural network, but ultimately it is better in the tests that we've seen at predicting what economic variables are going to be if you give it enough data, better than humans already. So, um, out, in our typical world, you would have data, I don't know, financial reports, balance sheets, um, competitor reports, etc. You have an analyst, people that are highly trained, and some of you may be doing that job after studying for it for many years, and then you have models. Yeah, people have different models and experts in different things, but they take into account a whole lot of data, and then using those models, they will come to make decisions. Machine learning, as I said, is somewhat different. Um, you take in data, but as much data as you possibly can, and then machine learning uses some of that data, which is outputs. It looks at where share prices have gone in the past based on where data was in the past, and it finds the correlation between all of them. Um, and basically, it can then tell you what to buy or what to, to sell. Um, so you've got a virtual committee that does it. So the way we do it, and we think this is the right way, is to instead of having one analyst, um, we would like to have a thousand. Um, we actually have many more. And each of them is an expert on one particular point of the market. So it, one could be an expert on prices, and other ones on earnings, and other one on growth and inflation, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and each of them will start making predictions based on their specific speciality or algorithm set, um, and come up with predictions. We think the stock price will be there. We think earnings will be there. We think economic growth and inflation, etc., will be there. And we overlay on top of it what we call an ensemble which is kind of like the CIO, and it allocates money where it thinks it will do best. If these um, algorithms come up with a very low prediction, which they sometimes do, they say, look, we're not certain, all that happens is it goes straight back to cash. Okay, so there's no emotional bias. I mean, and this incidentally is a quite a difficult thing for humans to do. Imagine you're rocking up and saying, look, I've done all the work, but I don't know what the answer is. I mean, you always want to have an answer, and you sometimes become emotionally um, kind of into what it is. Um, these algorithms don't do it, and then you have an ensemble on top which just gives it to those data analysts that feel most confident. Um, obviously, it can get quite complex. Um, you know, it's, it's far more than a thousand that we have in use right now. This is just one example where we've trained some on very specific factors, and those factors may be momentum or price or quality or value, you know, all the big themes that operate in the market. So the interesting thing is our models um, and this is just one going back to 2004. The very lowest one is what the equity market has done, that gray one. Now you can see how the models outperform. So that's an exponential or, or logarithmic scale is multiples uh, higher than what the market does, but also sometimes with quite high drawdowns. Um, we've chosen to not go for the highest, uh, highest performance. And just it's just because it's such a new field and we know that when you go around to investment managers and say invest with us um, and you do it on a totally new discipline, such as machine learning, they won't always stomach those big drawdowns. So the one we've chosen, you can't see it that clearly, it's kind of a light blue right in the middle, and it allocates it to different factors. The performance is not as high, but um, you know, we've taken a, a very deliberate decision to not just go for the highest performance, but to reduce drawdowns. And what it does, um, it 
goes between the factors, between quality, profitability, prediction, etc. Et, et and those are just the colors. And you can see it nearly looks like a Picasso painting, um, the way that it, it changes its, its approach. And once again, what's interesting here about human bias is I think it's very difficult for a traditional shop to say, I'm a value investor, um, but value isn't working this week or this month. Um, or I'm you know, based on quality, etc. But again, the models can do it quite unemotionally, and I think ultimately that's one of the biggest benefits that they have. So what I'm talking about um, isn't that crazy anymore. Machine learning is being used widely in the investment management field. This is one book I would recommend, Advances in Financial Machine Learning. It's probably one of the books, quite recent book, that covers all of it. But I've got examples here of how it's being used in credit risk analysis. So that's one field if you're in a bank. Um, JP Morgan is uh, doing it particularly for value strategies. That's a report they've brought out. You can find some academic studies. This one is on yield curve forecasting. So this is, these are interest rates that can be used. Um, and there's another one for credit analysis. Um, so one quick example I want to use, uh, want to do here, and this is not investing. This is short-term trading, um, high frequency. Some of you may have even read, read that uh, book about um, the Michael Lewis book about how people are now trying to get closer and closer to the markets and building lines that connect them and completely straight lines and fiber. And the reason for it um, is this. Let's speak about it afterwards. Okay, I'm going to stop it there. Um, I, I think you get it. This is one stock half a second across the world. It is not possible for humans to try and outperform that at all. Um, so what people are doing is co-locating, they're putting their machines as close as possible to the various markets. Um, these uh, axes don't show it as clearly, but basically since 2014 till 2017, co-location has gone from under 20 to just under 40%, so it's already doubled. Um, so 40% of all trades in the market are now done like they were done over there. Um, it's impossible for a human to compete in, in high-frequency trading. But what I'm telling you today is that the same thing is going to happen in investing, not just in high-frequency, that it'll be driven by the same type of machine learning algorithms that have a whole lot of advantages, lots of data that it can process, the speed at which it can do so. Um, so it won't just necessarily be based on co-location, but um, on, on the quality of the algorithms that you use. So I spoke a little bit about models, and the point is that machine learning can produce better models than we as people can do, and they can just look at many more correlations than, than we could ever do. The next explosion, of course, is the one in data, um, and there are just so much more that is coming our way through visual recognition. I gave you examples of that. Through speech recognition, you can now, um, see what is being written about any company or what traders are talking about. Um, one way of looking at it is just the big data industry in general. So this actually does include every selfie that's taken, every Instagram, um, every post that anyone writes on Facebook, and how that is just growing. And there's a graph here that says we've gone from 7,9 zettabytes. Now, okay, a zettabyte is uh, 1,000 exabytes, which is 1,000 petabytes, which is 1,000 terabytes, which is 1,000 gigabytes, which is the only thing I know from one of my telco ventures. And you can see how we're going from 7,9 zettabytes to 44 billion zettabytes. Now, I'm not saying that all of it is relevant, but once again, it's much easier for machines, through machine learning, to say which is the re relevant data that um, determine financial markets. So the data you are probably still thinking of, and I must admit me too, is this type of data. 
It's data on a Bloomberg screen. You can ask it a hell of a lot of questions, a whole lot of data. It's neatly structured, neatly packaged. You can analyze it quite neatly. Um, this would probably also be data, you know, the financial reports that people come out with, to the extent that that is not packaged in Bloomberg, you know, that you can read the chairman's report and you can see what they think about the future and so on. Or you can take your data and manipulate it a little bit, like we did, and do kind of graphs and technical analyses and oversells and all those type of things, which, you know, compared to machine learning, nearly is voodoo, like the voodoo science of 100 years ago, but right now it is kind of, you know, quite... Um, basic compared uh, to what you can do. Or you can look at the economic data, and you know what's happening in GDP and GDP per country and inflation. All those things, by the way, are ex-post. I mean, inflation only gets posted and then it's already for a past period and the same with GDP growth and so on. Um, okay, so this is just an example of sentiment analysis. And the interesting thing is the company that did this, Brandsai, you may have well heard of them, Cape Town-based, um, accurately predicted that Trump was going to beat Clinton. And they did it based on analysis of Facebook feeds all over America. And you may say it was going to be 50-50 as well, and they just got it right. But they got it right um, for every single state in America. Um, they could say they're going to get so many votes in every single state. So very, very accurate analysis of just what people were doing on Facebook. Now, if you can do it for a presidential election, where all the pollers got it wrong, by the way, you can do it for companies as well. And they do do it for companies, and um, I just, I'm not at liberty to share that with you. So the question is, what does data mean for you? Is it Bloomberg's and financial statements, or is it this? What this is are those buoys, I hope I've pronounced it correctly, buoys, buoys, um, and all in the oceans all over the world that can tell you what the water temperature is, whether it's raining, whether there are waves. Now, these things are also quite important in terms of weather prediction, um, and um, sometimes they can tell you how many boats are traveling a certain channel. Um, or it could be this type of data, which is weather data. I mean, there are thousands and thousands of points, which is why um, the weatherman is struggling to make uh, or the weather can I say we're the person I can in this particular instance? Um, because data is just so much better. You can check on wire.no what the weather's going to be hour by hour, exactly where you are. And of course, you can once again think of agricultural produce. Um, I'm in the wine industry. You sh should know better which wines are going to perform better based on the average temperature during summertime and the average sunlight that you get. And uh, most of it is easily accessible and free. Um, I've spoken about all these images. Um, so images of crops and how well they're doing, cars, um, petrol. But it could be anything. I mean, there are companies that analyze call center data. So if a company advertises on TV, phone now if you want this offer, you can actually track how many sales calls are coming in. Or if a company is doing badly, um, you know, how many complaints they are getting. Um, track client applications, credit data, you know, which companies have the best credit data. You can sometimes, you can use the data, I chair a credit bureau, better than the company themselves. You know more about their customers than they know themselves. Social media, I gave you the example of Trump Clinton, but you can look at nearly anything, you know, what people are going to vote in South Africa there, and any form of alternative data. So, so maybe what has happened in data is that our world, um, which is that inner circle, the typical kind of Wall Street analyst, is actually quite small. You know, you know your data, you get your Bloomberg's and Reuters feeds and data, and you're quite comfortable and you've built models around that. You get intellectually that there's data outside of the circle that will also influence things, uh, but you think it's so unstructured that some, some of it is really difficult built, to be built into models. And the thing is that machine learning can do all of that. And it can assign higher probabilities maybe to some of these things in the circle and smaller probabilities outside, but it'll figure all of that out because it's better at maths than any of us are. 
So Quandle, for example, is a service that can give you kind of all the basic data that you need, um, all the more packaged data, and then on top will give you all of these, this alternate data all in one kind of API, so you can withdraw it from there. So lots of data, lots of alternate data, lots of new models and machine learning that come, to, uh, come up with the answer. But maybe one of the most amazing things is this move to the cloud, the cloud that is not really a cloud, it's just you know, more and more boxes that somebody has elsewhere. But this is still the typical firm. Um, in fact, you can even look at this and think that every single worker there is like a little cell on an Excel spreadsheet. You know, and they're all working with each other and you know, kind of trying to come up with an answer for, for the firm as a whole. Um, People may think that bigger processing power is having bigger computers. I, I can tell you when we started our little um, company that's based on machine learning, they bought their machines that, I don't know, to me they look like the Ferrari of laptops and so on. And right now, all of that is actually just a joke because you're not going to do anything on your own machine anymore. You're going to completely feed it to the cloud. And the eye-opener for me was how cheap it is um, and how you can program this, these machine learning algorithms to run when the cloud is in downtime. You just basically say, you build, in fact, you build another algorithm that goes into an auction, and it just finds out. So if there's a big company that uses a lot of the processing power, you just stand back and you let them do their thing, and you come in the low time, and then it processes all these algorithms that, that we have available at a very low cost. And this would have presented a barrier to entry for any new entrant into financial services maybe five years ago, maybe even three years ago. And right now, um, you have nearly unlimited processing power at a very low cost if you do it smartly. So maybe my final point now is you've got all this data, you've got all these new models, you've got all this processing power. Um, now it sounds like you need to do a lot of thinking, but the interesting thing is you don't even need to do a lot of thinking because there are experts all over the world that are already working on this. And you can get the ideas of the crowd, or if you want to, you can call them the experts um, in anything. So for one, one of the coding languages that is starting to do incredibly well in machine learning is Python. Um, and it has 34 million contributions, and these are all algorithms that you can go, get, go and get for free on the internet in one particular language. And it's, it's grown so incredibly that people are building a whole lot of applications for Python, most of which is free. Uh, that is for me also, from a business perspective, quite amazing. And I've just got some, um, some logos there that you can see all the f mostly free services that we use. Um, some of them are recipes, some of them are forecasters. There's a blackboard where you post certain of your results. Um, there's allocation experts, etc., etc. I mean, GitHub is a repository where you can store it and you can ask for advice for other customers. It works on Windows and Linux and so on. So, a small startup using one or two or three or four people, I mean, we're four and they're all just actually mathematical experts, not financial market experts, can leverage off the crowd expertise of something that's available all over the world for free. Um, which really has taken away that barrier to entry. There's this website called Kaggle. I, I have spoken about Kaggle in, in front of this um, cerebral, clever audience before, but basically it's the website for data scientists all over the world where you can put to them any challenge about a prediction and they will all compete to come up with the best answer and you only need to pay the best predictor. And they still maintain that they come up 100% of the times with a better answer than the domain expert in any given company. And it's partly because they have access to more data, they know how to manipulate it, and they're unemotional about the forecasting. So something you guys could add to, or something that you can withdraw from. Um, and the final example is are two expert-sourced hedge funds 
Quantopian and Numerai. I think Quantopian's New York, Numerai's based in San Francisco. And basically, they give you all the data, all the tools, which you can then use, and then you propose um, an investment strategy. And depending on how good your investment strategy is, they reward you better or worse. Um, so these are hedge fund traders that exist all over the world and try and outperform markets. So if I could just close with a quick little video, which you know, kind of summarizes what I've said, I think a little bit better than me, and then you're welcome to shoot any questions. Meet John. John is an asset manager who makes investment decisions on behalf of his clients. John employs a team of analysts, and together they collect data from traditional financial sources to evaluate their current and prospective investments. Based on their analysis, John constructs investment portfolios for his clients accordingly. John and his team are very busy. However, the world in which John and his team are operating is rapidly changing. The amount of digital data on the planet is growing exponentially, doubling every two years. The more connected we become as a planet, the more information is generated, rapidly outpacing John and his team's ability to collect and analyze the data effectively. Without knowing it, John and his team are missing out on a lot of data and inputs. While this rising flood of big data is daunting, it also has tremendous potential for those who are able to organize and understand it. Meet Bob. Bob is a data scientist. At the heart of his scientific discipline is the search for patterns and seeming chaos. Bob works alongside Brian, his clever computer, which uses some very powerful tools, most of which are free. Through the use of programming languages such as C++, Python R, and other open source machine learning frameworks, Brian never stops learning. That's because these frameworks are constantly updated and refined by some of the smartest research groups around the world. With Brian working in the cloud, Bob is able to collect, store, and analyze lots of structured and unstructured data at an incredible speed. Brian uses heuristic algorithms to optimize the machine learning model parameters in order to recognize repeatable patterns, anomalies, or mispriced assets, thus making sense out of all of the data and harnessing the power it holds. Bob, together with Brian, can provide John with the ability to make investment decisions based not only on structural traditional financial information, but on a sea of unstructured data from all types of sources, such as Quandle, Google, sentiment indicators, and social media feeds. This gives John access to opportunities to improve his investment performance, which John wouldn't normally recognize. By using the latest technology, Numerical can combine the best of John and Bob into a repeatable process which is non-emotive, cost-effective, and easily scalable. By analyzing the past to build insights into lots of data, we are able to react on information to make investment decisions for the future. From hindsight to insight to foresight in a clear, repeatable process. Technology is getting smarter. Shouldn't the way we invest get smarter too? Okay. Um, sorry, I did say that's better than I would have said it. So the, my bottom line message to you is the world's changing very fast. There's a hell of a lot of data out there. There's a lot of free stuff out there that you can use. Um, but if you are not going to embrace machine learning, I think there's a very good chance that you will be irrelevant in 10 years' time. Um, this isn't you know, kind of something magic and voodoo out there. Big, big names are already doing it. And the tools are available for you to do it. And it is the future of investing. Thank you for listening. I think for those of you that were kind of going, I wish I was like Michael Leon, now you know you should be like Bob.
I think, you know, rather be like Bob. Michael, thank you so much. I always have my mind stretched every time you speak. It's amazing. Ricardo Semler talks about in every company, you need, someone, you need someone to sit and look out the window and stare at the horizon. That's what Michael does for us. Looks at that horizon and... Uh, so, any questions? We, we've got a couple of minutes. Uh, you might have some burning questions. I have one. It's kind of a medical one, Michael. The, um, the, the acronym, what does NMRQL stand for? In, in medical terms, NMR is not a great term. So, uh, NMRQL? <laughs> I was actually advised that you have to be very careful about branding. So, I completely suppress that. You may not even be allowed to ask me that question, but it's, it's, this is a very clever audience. It's numerical. Numerical. Oh, right. Okay. So numbers. Lots of numbers. So Brilliant. Thank you. No, I no, wish no, I could no, say I knew that, but no, I didn't. No, no inside jokes like that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Any questions for, uh, for Michael? There is one. Uh, so if a lot of companies start using the machine learning investment tools, um, or have you seen any examples, or do you think that we will see examples of um, people manipulating it? Because I know everyone's going to do something different, but... Um, sometimes people do tend to do the same thing, so the algorithms might start working the same, and if you can see a glitch in the system, uh, there might be room to abuse it. I do think so, yes. So, what is that book written by Michael Lewis about the... It's not, it's not the big short, it's when he wrote... It no. no, it's not Blink either. Scrolling here again. Apologies, it's a nervous speaker, so I fiddle with my cables. Um, fascinating book, but particularly dealing with high-frequency trading about, about how people are actually manipulating, exploiting everything. I mean, the most basic thing was the one with the fastest connection between exchanges, you know, so speed. But that's always been an advantage. I mean, it goes back to, was it the Rothschild who, you know, saw what the Napoleonic Wars were going to be won, and the dove came back and told him first, and then he signaled by, and everybody thought the wrong party had won, and the market went up, and then he short. Anyway, it's, so it's informational advantage. And then it is algorithms based on some exchanges that are configured incorrectly, that reward people for running the wrong type of liquidity and letting certain orders jump. What has in fact happened there is people have recognized that these are actually fundamental mistakes in the setting up of exchanges and they've had to fix that. So you could argue that both of the one, the one is natural, the other one is people in the market's always going to understand these constraints better and sometimes exploit them and then you have to adapt and fix it. It could be that there are specific ones that actually front run, which is also bad. So this is all the high frequency stuff. Um, and what typically happens with any new technology is regulation lags behind. You know, kind of something goes wrong and then they catch up and say, like, what can we do to, to stop it from, from reappening again? Um, in the investment world, which is now the one that I think will next be dominated by machine learning, there's definitely a form of an arms race happening. The one where the best algo wins. Okay? So I, I think you can philosophize about this, but that is likely to happen. The thing that does give me hope is that in markets as we know it today, um, there are so many strategies out there, and many of them can still win. I mean, I read that book, um, Schwager's book, about um, the, the best traders, interviews with all these best traders. And what struck me out of that book is that so many have completely opposite strategies. The one says, I'm just short term, my book is like net hedged at the end of the day. Others will say, no, no, it's only because you're in the market for 10 years and you don't trade at all that you outperform. Some are value, some are momentum, etc. So, I mean, I, I think we're going to see an incredibly exciting future. And it's not just going to be one party wins all of it and it's because there are all these kind of different uh, aspects to markets. But the fundamental thing that you need to think about or this audience needs to think about is, do you think 
machine learning will beat humans? That really is the question. Now once, so some of you may not believe it. There's another school of thought that says it's man plus machine, man plus machine learning. Um, you know, Elon Musk even is kind of a believer in that. He says AI is going to happen, but we need to understand what it's doing and we need to be a part of it. Um, and if you buy into machine learning, then you can start having this type of debates about, you know, which machine learning is going to win and is it going to exploit certain things. Um, final point there, I showed that we have chosen as our investment strategy not the highest performing algo combination. We'd rather have less drawdowns. Actually, what I meant to say is we also want more interpretability. Um, people have said, is it a black box? And it was in the beginning. And now we'd rather say we understand where we are and why these decisions are, are being, being made. So there are a lot of philosophical questions that still need to be answered about this. And I certainly don't have all the answers. But I think the important thing is my belief, and I'm trying to persuade you all of it, is these, these things are going to outperform you. So find a way to exist in a world with machine learning. Great. So, you know, your jobs are on the line. <laughs> to sum up, question for you. Uh, that's right. Thanks. It's a, it's a difficult one to explain, but when you show your outperformance, Warren Buffett outperforms because he, are, he exploits the difference between value and price. Um, if you go into very, very micro trading strategies, you're looking at how sen you're predicting sentiment because sentiment is independent, let's say, of value. Do you think the algorithm is adding value by exploiting the, the price difference between value or predicting sentiment and therefore actually trading more frequently? I, I wish I could stand here and, and told you I knew exactly. I, I don't. And, and this is kind of the interesting thing is, you, you know, we let these algos loose and then they came up with predictions and we picked the ones where the error terms were the least and the confidence was the highest and they seemed to do well. They also good at understanding regime change, which is like a really important thing for me is um, can they change their minds quickly? Yes, they can, even though they were these drawdowns, they recognize it and they move on. But we do not yet we, we, well, fully understand all their decisions. And it's, to me, it sounds like quite a simple thing. Just go back and understand why they got to those decisions. But they can't. They've just been computing this in the cloud for 24 hours. And the correlations are far more complex than, than we as humans can understand. So what we are doing right now is trying to understand that answer better. So, for example, we were really, really happy that we, you know, didn't touch time off. The others just didn't want to touch time off. But and I wish I could just tell you it was because of sentiment and so on. But it might be that they change auditors frequently and change urines frequently. And it could be that the algos picked up that if you do that type of stuff, you know, don't, don't, don't trust, trust it. So this is one of those big debates in machine learning is do you just completely forget about financial markets for a second. Let's say we stop having a democratically elected government in South Africa and we take all decisions just based on data and machine learning and we can prove that that will make our economic growth rate go to 6%. Will we as human beings be happy with that? Or do we want to vote for people that kind of make good speeches? It's a big debate. Most people would say, no, no, we, we don't want machines to make decisions, even if we can prove it will grow at 6%, but we don't understand why they make those decisions that we don't like. So it's the same thing in financial markets. We need to find our way in machine learning to say, where do we think um, it is best suited to us? The interactions that we as a little startup have, have had with some of the, the bigger asset managers or people are saying, please come and advise us and be alongside us. So we'll do our normal route and say, okay, this is a buy or a sell, but we just want to see what do your algos also say about it using all this alternative data. So that's probably the process that we will do is first, first go through this man and machine iteration. 
Thank you, Michael. I think let's leave it there. Uh, I think for many, many years we've had airplanes that can take off, cruise, land by themselves. But how many of us want to get into a plane, look into the cockpit and just see a big red button? You know, we want a human being there for some strange reason. So, Michael, thank you for those insights. Let's give him a round of applause. Really superb. The gift. Oh, the gift, Michael. There's a gift. Thank you so much. Um, we've got a bottle of wine in here. It's really short and really small. And No, it's not. But, uh, Michael, thanks so much. Really appreciate you, assistant. Go well. Let's give another round of applause, Mr. Yodan.